Hi, this is Mike Balaban. You're listening to Bammer, building community through storytelling and sharing the LGBT experience. So my guest today, once again, is Cliff Morrison, back for a second episode covering his career and the arc of the development of AIDS as a disease. Cliff, the last time we spoke, we covered how you got involved in nursing as a career, as a way of servicing people and giving back. Ended up in San Francisco at exactly the moment when AIDS was about to break out and then found yourself thrust into the middle of it, helping to build the first AIDS-specific patient ward 5B at San Francisco General Hospital. The last time we spoke, you sound so composed and almost unaffected by what was happening, and yet you were dealing with death on a daily basis with all the friends in your life and with all the people you were caring for. What was that like? Well, I think sometimes it's really hard to put it into words because there's so much emotion that's there. And sometimes that emotion gets pushed down. It gets it comes up and comes out in different kinds of ways, really, I think, based on what I'm going through at the time, the way I feel that day or whatever. So at different times it comes out in different ways, but it's always with me. There are days when it truly affects me so much more than others. So I guess there must have been days where you exploded or were depressed or whatever, but I suppose you held it in most of the time in in that period of three years. Is that fair to say? Yes. As I look back at that period of time, I was coached very well by a professional colleague that I worked with who was very well known, and he assisted me in kind of developing and, and perfecting this image. He really pointed out to me and coached me on how important it was that I project this certain image of always being composed, being calm, being professional, because I was the face of what was going on in the community and how important it was to be able to convey that message that I was an effective leader, manager, and that I knew what I was doing. Did you have friends, family, this advisor who were an outlet when you had to just break down? I was pretty much alone during that period. It's one of the reasons why he and I became such really good friends. And of course, that person was Randy Schiltz, who was during that time in the process of writing and the band played on. And we've spent a lot of time together. He spent a lot of time with me on the unit, particularly in my office and sometimes in the evenings as we would sit and go through different aspects of what I was going through. And he was working through issues around and the band played on. You know, Randy was a a seminal figure in the movement and a key player in all of this. Can you describe for the audience who he was? Yes. You know, Randy Schultz was a rather controversial person. He was a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. Like so many reporters during that period, he was a trailblazer. I think he might have been the first openly gay reporter for a major newspaper. He liked scratching the surface. This was even before the AIDS epidemic. But as soon as AIDS came along, he was on top of it. And he felt very strongly about it. He felt it very personal because he saw how it was affecting the people around us. And as I was beginning to put together 5B, and I was already the clinical AIDS coordinator at San Francisco General, he contacted me. We very quickly became good friends. We started spending a lot of time together. Randy was much more afraid of AIDS than I was. I can't say that I was afraid at all, but Randy was very early on was confiding in me that he was afraid that he was going to get AIDS and die. And my response was, I'm not going to. 
I will be around to take care of people. I won't get AIDS. I did have other friends around me, particularly at work. I didn't have a lot of friends outside of work, and I had no family around me. So essentially, my work colleagues and Randy Schultz were my family. How were you so certain you weren't going to get ill? By that time, I knew that I wasn't engaging in risk factors. I was so busy working. It wasn't that I wasn't being sexual, but very early on, I understood what safe sex practices were, and I made sure that any time I engaged in any sexual activity, that I was using safe practices. So Randy would become HIV positive and contract AIDS and ultimately mm-hmm. pass away, right? Yes. Well, tell us a little bit about And the Band Played On for the younger members of the audience who aren't familiar with it. And the Band Played On is kind of the history of HIV and AIDS in America during that period of time focused a lot on what was going on in San Francisco, but it focused a lot on what was happening within the healthcare system itself. San Francisco was one of the major centers, the University of California, the San Francisco Department of Public Health, California State Department of Health, and then, of course, the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta and the United States Department of Health Services and the whole response from the federal government. So he was looking at it from that whole perspective. And I was too in a certain way, but my major focus was really what was going on at San Francisco General and in San Francisco specifically. So the story became a book first, and then I believe, was it an HBO special movie? Yes, it was. Mm -hmm. Right. So why don't you share with us what was going on in terms of opposition to the ward? In the beginning, there wasn't a lot of opposition to the ward. There was a lot of support for it. But I resisted the whole idea of a ward because people were talking about we have to have a ward because we have to isolate these folks. We have to keep them away from the general population. We have to protect everyone. Let's put them in an isolation area away from everybody. Because of my leadership role at that point, I was already saying, no, I don't want any part of that. But as the cases increased and I saw how things were going that we didn't have the resources. It was becoming more impossible for me and my clinical role to coordinate the care of these patients around the hospital because there were so many of them. I began to think we should have a unit. We should have a special ward so that we can really focus on developing an expertise so that we we can have staff, we can have nurses, counselors, and staff that volunteer because they want to work in this area and they're not afraid of it then we can begin to develop this standard of care and develop all these policies and procedures and really consolidate resources and be able to focus on specifically what the needs are, not only for our patients, but also for us as care providers. That was how we made this real switch. And that was kind of when Randy Schiltz came in, because at first he was kind of like, what the hell are you doing? But he very quickly began to see where I was going with that. And then he became a real supporter of it. You know, I don't think a lot of our younger members of the audience are aware that you started preparing the ward in 1981-82, right after AIDS broke out. At that time, the disease didn't even have a name. They weren't sure what caused it or how it was transmitted. The panic in the general population over possible exposure via touch or via breathing the same air and transmission was palpable. And many medical professionals were refusing to care of AIDS patients. So that was the atmosphere in which 5B was born, wasn't it? Yes, that was definitely the the atmosphere in which the unit was born. 
because we realized patients were all over the hospital and I couldn't be with every patient all the time. I had developed relationships with some nurses and some staff and I knew that when they were on that the patients that were around them were receiving the quality of care that they should. But for most of them, that was not the case. And so I wanted them to be able to create space where we would be able to centralize the resources so that our patients really would be cared for in a more humane and, you know, a better organized, coordinated way. Can you describe some of the standards that were employed in this ward that were so revolutionary? Yes. Not only did did we develop specific uh, policies and procedures on how you handle different aspects of care specific to working with people with HIV and AIDS, but really began to focus on a holistic approach. Patient-centered care is what it became. That term was around, but I don't think very many people really understood it or were practicing it. The first thing we did was we started developing our care plans, the planning of how this person was going to be cared for, with the patient being the center of that. And so before AIDS, by and large, the healthcare system was designed so that when you came in with a specific illness, we mapped it all out for you. We went to you. We said, this is what we're going to do. Sign this. We didn't really ask you, what did you want? So this was a whole new approach. And a lot of people weren't comfortable with that. Well, you know, we can't give all that control to patients. Patients need to be told what to do. They're sick. They don't know what to do. They look to us for our expertise. So we're the ones that are in charge. They're not. They don't know what they're doing. I saw that very differently. I felt we have the expertise. It's our responsibility to explain what they need to know. But the decision about how that care is going to be planned, how it's going to be implemented, and particularly as you're looking at procedures and processes and end-of-life care, that it really should be the patient making those decisions and leading it and us following I'm thinking even more specifically, the dress code of who was allowed to see the patients, those changes. Can you describe them? Yes. Early on, everybody felt that if you're going to be around somebody with this disease, then you need to be dressed head to toe. I was totally against that. I never did that. I worked with infectious diseases. I worked with the experts, the researchers from the university and from the Department of Public Health and researchers from around the country and people from the CDC and knew that we needed to develop specific practices on when do you wear what we call protective equipment. That's the the head coverings, the masks, the gowns, whatever. And in some of the scenes of 5B you see early on where people literally were hooked up, they were wearing what we call the spacesuits. That was not necessary. What we did was we developed very specific practices and formalized them in the terms of policies and procedures that you wore this equipment in certain situations, you wore gloves, you wore masks, you wore gowns, you wore headgear. If you were doing procedures where body fluids or, or, or could possibly be aerosolized and were in the air, if you were going to be involved in procedures where there was going to be blood or other body fluids, i.e. body waste, urine, whatever. So we became very specific about exactly what you needed to wear and what you needed to do. So it meant that as we developed this, that we had to continually educate everybody that was involved and try to move them away from this thinking where, oh my God, 
everybody's going to get this. So I have to cover myself from head to foot, regardless with every single patient. So it took a long time. And I think in some situations, it we still have to deal with this. I'm at this conference where yesterday this nurse was talking about in a long-term care facility that they had this elderly woman in her 80s who has AIDS and that the the nursing assistants, when they still shampoo her hair, wear gloves because they're afraid of getting HIV and AIDS. And we're talking about almost 40 years later. So you see this need to have very clear documentation, you know, very clear policies and procedures, a good standard of practice and care, and continually educating staff, including the patients along the way. That was a major change. And part of giving some of that control and a lot of that control back to the patients was just throwing away the whole idea of visiting hours. Our patients were very critically ill. They wanted to have family, and oftentimes that family was family of choice, not biological family, but there were some biological family. We basically threw out visiting hours and said, your loved ones are people working during the day, so oftentimes they can only be here in the evening. We're not going to have visiting hours over at 6.30 or 7 or whatever. If they want to stay and be with you in, late into the evening, they can. And we went on so much then as to start bringing in cots if and letting significant other and family members stay all night if they want to. It made our life easier because there was someone at the bedside all the time. Many of those family members and significant others became informal caregivers. We were able to teach them how to do some of the basic care. Patients responded because they felt like they had someone right there with them who knew them and loved them. So it made our job easier. The patients felt better about it. They weren't as anxious. We were criticized highly. You know, why are you doing this? We've never done this. So many times I heard during that period, we've never done this. This is not what we do. Why are you doing it? From that, we went on to basically redefine family because up until that point, people were able to say, well, you know what? You're not a legal biological part of this family. You're not legally married. You're not a parent, a sibling. So you don't have any rights here. So we started working with attorneys and legal advocates to ensure that patients understood their rights and that they could actually draw up paperwork and they could essentially decide, this is the person that I want to be with me. This is the person that I want to either make decisions for me or help me make decisions. And that person may not be biological or family. And that was a whole new concept in healthcare. It worked out, I think, better for us at San Francisco General because of the nature of the community. But in other parts of the country, all of these things had not been done in healthcare before. If I recall correctly, you even allowed patients to have their pets brought in to be with them. Yes. I turned my back on a lot of that because, I mean, I'm a pet lover. I love dogs. I love cats. And I've always had pets. But I also realized how important it was when you've got somebody who's critically ill and perhaps at the end stages of life. And they're like, if I could only see my dog, if I could only pet my dog, we help them sneak them in, bring in small dogs primarily. You could immediately see the, uh, the reaction to the patients. Having a pet they haven't seen for days or weeks come lay next to them on the bed or they could sit up in a chair and hold them and pet them. And you could see the animals being so excited. It made our work so much easier. And it was such a beautiful thing to see that someone who's critically ill has their pet next to them 
because for a lot of us, our pets are our families. They are our children. If you've ever been sick and you've been away from someone or something that you love, think about what it's like when you get to see that person or that animal. And so we recognized and worked with people who helped us understand what was going on emotionally and psychologically. We never really formalized that piece as much as I would have wanted to, because acute care hospitals even today are still reluctant about pets. Where I work now, we encourage pets. We have pet therapy. Pet therapy has become a a norm now in most places, uh, certainly in long-term care. So these are the kinds of things that when you think about, they sound kind of strange, a little bizarre, but they're extremely important. And it was a huge shift, the whole way that we practice caregiving, uh, particularly in formal settings and in acute care places like San Francisco General Hospital. This went on from 83 to 86. I haven't asked you this, and maybe you can't come up with a figure. But could you estimate how many people you helped through the dying process during that time? Oh, wow. In the film, Allison actually goes to the archives at the library and starts going through this book. We kept a book. Oh, my goodness. By the time I left, it had been several hundred. I think we were averaging anywhere from 150 to 200 people a year dying on the unit. It easily could have been thousands. Uh, The numbers just started increasing so rapidly as soon as the unit became established because there was literally a waiting list. As soon as the bed was empty, someone filled that bed. For those that aren't aware, Cliff's referring to a documentary which we'll discuss in greater detail later in this episode called 5B. You decided in 1986 that you were kind of burned out, if I understand correctly. What happened then? I had been through a lot of legal battles. I was being challenged uh, by any number of people I was being challenged from within the facility. There were a group of nurses that to the union and got uh, assistance from local congressional leaders. We had a physician within the hospital who was the chief of orthopedic surgery, and she was extremely defiant and felt that everything that we were doing was ridiculous and and, and that we'd set up a, a different standard, a different level of care that wasn't fair to other patients in the hospital and wasn't fair to the care providers. So I found myself in all of these legal battles and being attacked from a lot of different points. And it wasn't just myself. I think we, we all felt that way, but I was the focal point. A lot of that was directed at me because I was the face of it. And so by the time we got through some of these labor standard hearings and things, I was exhausted. I was physically, emotionally exhausted. And so I found myself really having this need to pull back. And luckily for me, I did have a lot of wonderful support. At that point, I really started working more with my spiritual and religious support teams in the community, particularly at the Most Holy Redeemer Parish. And I began to seek more my own individual and personal counseling because that really began to make me see that here I was in many respects, I felt really alone. I was still a young man. I felt like I had a whole life ahead of me, and yet I was alone. I, you know, I went home alone at night. I lived in a small apartment in the city or a small condo in the city. I didn't have pets. I felt extremely vulnerable and extremely alone, and I was becoming more and more depressed and anxious. And there was all this pressure on me to maintain this image and to make sure that all of this work continued to get done, but yet I was being personally attacked. 
it took its toll. So I had been seeing a personal therapist for some time during that point, but I really kind of stepped up that. And my personal therapist, I began to see and not only weekly, but sometimes I would see him more than once a week. How did you deal with this trauma? I, I don't know if the audience is aware that PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome, is an ongoing battle. It's like addictions are things you deal with, but they're there with you the rest of your life, whether or not you utilize the substance to which you're addicted. Well, the trauma that you experienced in contending with death all around you for a period of years clearly went on for a while. How did you work that out? How did you deal with the processing of all that pain and anguish? Well, it's interesting because I was also doing a lot of work with Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross at the time. We were working on a book, and she had visited the unit, and I attended her training. So I understood that the process of grief and grieving and PTSD. But yeah, point for me, at that point, I was still looking at it like, I'm not experiencing that. Yeah, yeah, I have my days. I'm depressed. I'm upset or whatever. But when I was looking at all this trauma, I was more concerned about the other people around me. I understood the need that I needed support so that I could stay centered and balanced. But I wasn't really thinking of myself personally at that point as being a person that was traumatized. I didn't realize that until later. I'm so glad that accidentally that I was in therapy, that I did have those things around me because I wouldn't have been able to continue without them. I didn't realize until later after I got away just how much of that I still carried with me and how all these years later, I still carry it. You know, just like you said, PTSD, it's an amazing phenomenon and you don't ever really get cured of it. You learn how to cope with it. And I'm back to that point now because of where I'm at in my life, now dealing with some of those same issues all over again and feeling vulnerable as I age and be older gay man getting ready for retirement that here I am alone again, as I always was. And that's really hard. So now I'm, I'm back in therapy and treatment, trying to find a way to cope and to find the support that I need so that I can go on with my life. We discussed both of us around the same age, 67, 68, having lived to the same challenging times, lies ahead for gay men as we age. And it, you know, particularly if you're not with a family, if you don't have a partner, and also as you end your career and that sense of purpose and relevance disappears from your life. So it's understandable. Let me just ask you, take us for a couple of minutes through the next 30 years, what you were doing professionally. By the late part of 1986, I began to realize that perhaps I'd reached this logical end at San Francisco General. And the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation had developed this demonstration program with the University of California at San Francisco, implementing it. And Dr. Merv Silverman, who at that point had already left the Department of Public Health, was going to be the director of that. And so they asked me, with my expertise and background, and because I had worked with him and knew him so well, if I would be willing to come on as the deputy director responsible for the operations. Since I'd had the experience of coordinating care and setting up these systems, this whole demonstration project was going to 12, 13 cities around the country and implementing what had already been called the San Francisco model. And so my job then for the next seven or eight years was really doing that. And I found that extremely fulfilling in many ways, traveling and myself in whole different circles. It felt more comfortable in some respects, but I spent a lot of time alone traveling. 
And also I found that I was pushing deeper and deeper down in a way. Some of those feelings that had been much closer to the surface as I was dealing daily with these individuals on 5D and the AIDS unit and the whole AIDS program at San Francisco General. Although I spent those seven or eight years feeling really comfortable, it wasn't until after I got out of that that I began to realize there's some things that aren't right in my life and I, I couldn't figure out what it was. I was still doing some work at the university. I went to UC Berkeley. I was coordinator of continuing education for occupational health in the School of Public Health. After a few years of that, then I had the opportunity of going back within the UC system to San Francisco General. They had developed this whole department called the EPI Center, Epidemiology Prevention and Intervention. And it was all the infection control, the counseling, the testing. Again, put me right back in the center of this, working with people on the unit, but then also working with people in the Department of Public Health and nationally and internationally and working again with all these wonderful infectious disease people. I found that in the beginning, I was like, wow, I found my niche. This is exactly what I want. But I wasn't happy. I couldn't figure out why. And at first I thought part of that was just dealing with that whole bureaucracy again and the politics and all of this angst and anguish and arguing. But I was also caring for my best friend and his partner who were becoming increasingly ill. And then my best friend died and I became really despondent because I was taking care of his partner. And I found myself fed up. I'm taking a leave of absence. I'm going to focus on taking care of my best friend's partner. And so I did. And would you want to kind of take us just briefly through the Robert Wood Johnson was from what year to what year? And then the UC system and then San Francisco General Hospital again, just so we know where you were. Sure. I left San Francisco General in the AIDS clinical coordinator role, late 1986, early 1987. We started the AIDS Health Services demonstration program that went on until about, oh, I'm trying to remember, 1992. Then we took another year, even after it finished, because we were doing documentation and working with writers and and making sure that everything got clearly documented. So I spent seven, between seven and eight years working on that. And then in the early 1990s, right around the time that Bill Clinton became president, I went to UC Berkeley coordinating continuing education and occupational health in the School of Public Health. And I only did that for about a year and a half because the former chief of medicine at San Francisco General and Dr. Julie Gerberding to come back to San Francisco General as a University of California, San Francisco employee, but being director of the Epidemiology Prevention and Intervention Center. I thought, wow, this will be a a perfect match for me. And it did that for two and a half years, then took the leave of absence to take care of my friends who were dying. By the time that was over, I was like, I can't go back. I'm going to have a nervous breakdown myself. But again, because I had support in the community, support from the church, I had a counselor, I had a therapist, I was able to move on to something else. So I went to the University of San Francisco to teach and then became the assistant dean. Stayed there for about three years. Can I ask what was the primary source of that near breakdown? It was at that point, I had found myself finally in my life. I had found someone. I was in a relationship, but the relationship 
had its own faults. I mean, let's face it, I was a person suffering from PTSD and didn't know what it was. I had a partner who wanted to be empathetic and supportive, but didn't know how and didn't know what I was going through. He had done some volunteer work in AIDS as well, but he wasn't equipped or prepared to really deal with what I was going through. I was traveling. I was gone all the time. I just found that relationship was not meeting my needs and certainly not his. And so I was very unhappy. And I really felt what's happening. Why can't I find the happiness in that sense of peace and serenity that I see other people having? Why has it always eluded me? So I made major changes in my life. I left my relationship. I started my life all over again at the age of 49. I decided I'm not going to turn 50 dealing with this. My partner and I had a beautiful home and I walked away from everything. I essentially gave it all up and walked away from it and started my life all over again in a whole new career. Started working for a private corporation in healthcare, doing behavioral healthcare. I was a regional director of staff development and I did mostly teaching and I found that extremely fulfilling. But after a few years of that, then, then I went back into administration and I focused on working with the developmentally disabled. I found that extremely fulfilling, really felt that I had found my niche, wonderful team of people, a very supportive work environment. And it brings us up to then the, the making of the film 5B. And that started in 2016? Yes. Somebody started calling me in October of 2016. I wasn't really into it. I was like, that's a long time ago. That was a part of my past. And then my brother, who was a year older than me, was dying from colon cancer. I was really involved in that with my family. I basically had said to the researcher, I'm really not interested. I'm not in a place right now where I can deal with this. So she went on and started dealing with other people. And then one of those people, Allison Moed, who's a central person in the film 5B, came back to me. She said, Cliff, they really do need your perspective on this. And so then my brother died the first week in November of 2016. I said, OK, all right, I'll deal with this. So, again, I found myself in this situation where I had all this grief and all of this, all of these feelings. And then I felt like, you know what, I'm ready to tell my story now. I can do it. It's all fresh. I'm dealing with it. You know, I have all this raw grief and emotion and, and I can I can express it now and, and maybe I can make it more meaningful. People will understand it better. So we began the filming in January of 2017. Why don't you tell our audience kind of what the film covers, what the message it tries to get across and your central role in it? At the time, it was very vague about where it had come from. I was contacted by these researchers who were obviously extremely informed. The primary researcher had found an old newspaper article from 1983 where I had been interviewed. So the person who was responsible for making 5B, his name is Dan Krause, very well-known local documentarian who had already had significant success and recognition and had been nominated for an Academy Award. I agreed to meet with him. When I talked with him, I told him reservations. And he was just so warm and caring and supportive that he very quickly convinced me, we're going to do a good job with this. You know, we're, you know, we're doing this the right way. You know, we're doing our homework. We have researchers involved with this. We have the resources. And at any point, you can pull out of it if, if you don't feel that we're doing it. He interviewed me quite a bit. 
he wanted me to go back and talk about the initial response, the development, the evolution, how I became involved, how I became the clinical AIDS coordinator, how 5B was conceptualized, how we planned and developed it, and then all the issues came along as we did it. We didn't realize that they were going to use all of this archival film as well, although we had told him it's out there. So their researchers began to focus on that. We didn't really know what we had done until November of 2018 when we were contacted and said, we have a finished product. We want all of you that were involved to see a private screening of it and tell us what you think. And what did you think? We were blown away. What I saw was a beautiful, loving, caring, and fairly accurate account of what we all experienced. After we did a premiere at the Castro's, and we went for months with nothing happening. No one really got back to us. We kept trying to find out what was happening and was told that it takes a long time. Nobody ever really explained what was going on. We just knew that, that it wasn't happening. And, and then in April of this year, a number of us were contacted to go to New York where there was an announcement made that Verizon Media would be distributing films before we left New York. We were approached, and I was asked specifically, would you be able to go to the Cannes Film Festival in three weeks? I was like, of course. We went to the festival at first with it just having a special screening. It was too late for it to be put into nomination for any category. But when we got there, we immediately saw how big all of this was and how we were in the center of all of this media and then the reception of the film itself the screening and a four-minute standing ovation where i was just stunned we received enormous attention enormous accolades i mean people just loved it we all were sitting in this restaurant having dinner and dan kraus received a phone call where someone told him that the judges were so moved by the response to the film that they were going to take it out of the special screening category and put it in competition. Wow. And it won. And when you're a success, it can, you're a success. And the world knows about it. What was the category? As either a feature or full-length documentary, but it won four awards. That's great. Mm -hmm. So you're now traveling all over the country, having discussions and promoting the film. Is that correct? Yes, yes. You know, it's all kind of came full circle. So hopefully going to go into a new phase now. And I have no idea what's going to happen next. So I want to make sure the audience is aware 5B is now streamable on many different platforms. Isn't that correct? Yes. I think right now it is on demand on HBO and on Amazon. You can go to a website, the number five, the letter B, film, F-I-L-M, dot com. There's all sorts of information about the film, interviews with us. So now we're just kind of waiting to see what's next. I think the film is so significant that it will probably be around for a long time, be used for a lot of different things, particularly for educational purposes. Well, you know, Cliff, you've had an incredibly rich life, and and I am sure it will continue to be rich. This has been a, a fascinating discussion. It's also been a great time meeting and getting to know you, and I look forward to more personal contact going forward. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, and I look forward to working with you in the future. This episode of Bammer and Me has been produced by Mike Balaban and Tom Walker. For more stories, go to bammer.co.